Welcome to the Longevity Decoded Podcast, a thought-provoking journey into science and medicine with discussions on how to optimize your health by learning the cutting-edge tools to apply in your daily life, preventing illness and maximizing your health span. I'm your host, Dr. Guerrero. Hi, I'm Dr. Guerrero, a practicing pulmonary and critical care medical doctor. I had the privilege to study at Georgetown University and later further my studies at Harvard Medical School. Although my experiences at those institutions really gave me a lot of perspective on medicine and science, all the opinions and views on this podcast are entirely my own. Today, we're going to talk about a very special subject. It is special because most people want to know what's the bottom line with this, and that's alcohol and its effects in your body and your brain, and how does that affect your life? Is it something that you can drink a little off, maybe a little bit every day, sometimes? What is the reality of all this? So a lot of people want to hear about this, and the idea is that by using scientific data and medical knowledge, we're going to be able to get to the bottom of it in this episode of the podcast. Okay, let's start with some background information. What's the history of alcohol? How did we find alcohol and when? So the first group of people that found alcohol were the Chinese back in the year 7000 BC, and uh, they most likely stumbled upon it by spontaneous fermentation of a fruit such as an apple or a grape, for example. So the process of fermentation, just very basically for your understanding, is the conversion of glucose into, or sugar, okay, into ethanol. So when you have a fruit and you have in it fructose, which is a form of glucose, it can be converted by a yeast or yeast enzymes, so it will be spontaneous in the natural world by yeast, convert that glucose into two things. Ethanol, that's alcohol, that's the alcohol you drink in your regular drinks, ethanol and CO2, the gas that we actually exhale. So by leaving, let's say, food out to rot, you can get yeast to act on the glucose molecule and therefore convert it into ethanol. And then back then, 7000 BC, the Chinese, somebody ate some of that food that was starting to rot and they experienced the effects from alcohol and other people tried it, so on and so forth, and then they felt the effects. Some liked it, some didn't like it, but they started to investigate how did that happen. They figured out just leaving out fruit outside, letting it rot, hope for a yeast to ferment it, and they didn't know about the yeast, but it was happening, and then they were able to intake the fruit and then get the effects. Now, subsequently, we get in the year about 5,000 to 6,000 BC, approximately, the Persians were able to perfect the method with grapes and that's where their wines uh, started to pop up in history so the persians and the wines you can try to remember that then in the next thousands of years you get beer and other uh, types of drinks now uh, if you move forward in time the monks in the medieval times also started to consume a lot of beer they perfected the fermentation method and then 
going all the way to the Renaissance, that's when the distilleries start popping up and uh, the technique of distilling um, alcohol was perfected and then you get all the types of gins, rums, and all those drinks. Now, if we move forward in time, at about the uh, year 1920, that was an important uh, landmark here because we uh, hit a different cultural uh, direction or there was a shift on the zeitgeist of what people or humans uh, conceived of alcohol. So in the 1920s, we hit the prohibition times. So at that time, alcohol was prohibited. It was felt it was a bad thing. And you see at that point all the bootlegging and all the illegal traffic of alcohol. That subsequently changed several decades uh, ahead where alcohol was again legalized and of free use for uh, people. Uh, and since then, we've all had exposure to alcohol it becomes something that is very acceptable socially um, and that i would say has become too exaggerated in terms of how lenient we are with the drinking with most people in general and you can ask around and uh, you might know for yourself most people consider that maybe having a drink or two a day that's nothing so unfortunately i'm going to be here to debunk that uh that one to two drinks a day is something and it's not good i'm sorry to tell you that during the podcast today i'm going to clarify and demystify all those uh questions or preconceived notions of what's good and what's not good with alcohol and if there's anything good about alcohol i'll let you know so now that we got the history out of the way let's get down to the basic metabolism of alcohol when it comes into your body how does the body handle the alcohol and we'll start with the basic biochemistry of the alcohol molecule specifically ethanol and we'll talk about the biochemistry of the ethanol molecule and how the body handles that now before I go into that, I just want to clarify there's different types of alcohol, so don't get confused. For example, this isopropyl alcohol, which is the rubbing alcohol, which is different from methanol, which is a completely different story. And some people, unfortunately, historically, have tried to manufacture alcohol with methanol, which can lead to blindness. Very dangerous. Doesn't happen much anymore. Still a possibility. So, you know, methanol is bad uh because of that severe toxicity in the eyes and then you have ethanol that's the one that we consume that is also toxic it is essentially a poison okay so let's start with the biochemistry of ethanol what happens when you take in alcohol so when you consume alcohol you know side note alcohol can be put into your body by different routes oral intravenous rectal but we're going to focus here on your regular drinking of alcohol so that'll be an oral route through the gastrointestinal tract so you drink it goes into the esophagus the food pipe here into the stomach gets absorbed and then that goes through the portal system that's a venous circulatory system goes into the liver and then here the essential metabolism starts so the first step is to convert the ethanol into another molecule called acetaldehyde now, in order for the liver to convert that ethanol into acetaldehyde, it requires an enzyme. This enzyme is called alcohol dehydrogenase. And that's an important step there. 
Some people, and it's more prevalent in some Asian populations, either have a significant deficiency of the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme or they have none of it. So they cannot make that initial conversion and those are the people that when they take a drink, they immediately get nauseous, they throw up, they get somnolent, slurred speech very quickly, even half a drink and they're done. Those people are the ones that essentially they just don't drink because they know they're going to have that immediate effect and have never experienced anything. On the more pleasant side of the effects uh, that alcohol can have on the brain and what people report and why people drink. So again, we get the ethanol molecule going through the GI tract into the liver and then the liver will utilize the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme. The alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme will convert the ethanol into acetaldehyde. Okay, that acetaldehyde mo uh, molecule is very key. That molecule is the one that is the most toxic of all. Okay, the ethanol molecule, like I just said, causes all those symptoms, nausea, vomiting, slurred speech, etc. But the acetaldehyde is even more toxic to all cells in your body. Most concerning, obviously, will be the brain. Okay, so that's the molecule that make you inebriated. That's the molecule that make you feel tipsy or drunk. Okay. So then what the body's going to do with this acetaldehyde is to utilize another enzyme that's another step in biochemistry. And again, don't get too concerned about remembering all the steps. It's just to give you a, a general understanding, some basic knowledge, so at least you've heard about this. Okay. So then the acetaldehyde, the toxic molecule, gets converted by aldehyde dehydrogenase. That's another enzyme into acetate. Now, interestingly, the acetate can be used as fuel to produce ATP, which is a unit of energy in the body. So it can be used. So when you have this acetate as the end result of this equation, this can be used as calories and energy. Now, some people call this empty calories and it you know, from a specific perspective, it makes sense, but you're getting actual energy, real energy at the end from the alcohol when you get this acetate, but they call it empty calories because the acetate does not come along with micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. It's just pure calories, but it does lead to the production of ATP and energy in the cell. How does it do it? Well, the acetate will actually get into the TCA cycle, also known as the Krebs cycle. If, if anybody is a biochemist here, will know much better than me, actually. But it will go into the uh, Krebs cycle as acetyl-CoA, and then that eventually will lead to the production of an ATP molecule energy in the cell. Now, other factors are going to affect what we call the pharmacokinetics. That means how the ethanol is handled in the body in terms of the metabolism and the excretion of it. So some factors play a role in this. For example, did you take the alcohol with an empty stomach? Did you take it with any other calories? And when you look at different studies, in general, taking all three classes of types of calories will slow down the absorption of the alcohol into the uh, intestine and the stomach in a more gradual fashion. So for example, it would be better if you want to have a more gradual absorption to take in a meal with fat, sugar, and protein combined versus 
just uh, let's say a meal that is pure fat. There's some myths about just having a pure fat meal. It's going to slow down the absorption, but it's been shown that if you take a combination of, again, fat, carbohydrates like sugars, for example, and protein, that will lead to a slower absorption. So that's something to consider. If somebody takes a couple of shots, empty stomach, they're going to get the alcohol very quickly into the brain, very likely within just a few minutes. Um, as alcohol is very water soluble and fat soluble, can cross this barrier in the brain very easily called the blood brain barrier or the BBB can get in there and cause the effects quickly. But if you took a full meal with all the three macronutrients there, you'll be much slower, okay? In terms of what happens in the body, in the liver mainly, we go through the enzymes and the whole metabolism all the way to the acetate. And then ultimately, the final step will be the excretion. And pharmacokinetics are something called a zero type of excretion or zero kinetic type of excretion. So alcohol or ethanol follows a zero kinetic type of excretion, meaning that it is excreted at a specific rate per time unit, regardless of the concentration. Uh, and it's excreted ultimately into the urine, the breath, that's why you have the alcoholic breath, and the sweat. Some people stink like alcohol if they've drank a lot. Now let's go ahead and dive into the meat of the subject. And you know what that is. Does drinking at a very low to moderate amount cause significant damaging effects to the brain and body? So let's talk about a large amount. A large amount will be drinking in general and it is considered, and people know that's not good for you, taking say three to four drinks every single day. Okay, whatever the drink is, that's a massive amount. But a lot of people say, well, what if I just have, let's say one glass of wine a day, just at night, a little bit before sleep, and that's it, that's nothing. So that, that will be a low dose to have just one drink a day. And a lot of people in general have considered that that's not much. It's probably good for you to relax. There's no problems. So there's been a lot of controversy with that because we know how toxic the acetaldehyde molecule is, and uh, people get hangovers even with just one drink. So is it good or bad? So finally, a study coming out of the UK, which I'm gonna uh, show you here now, um, with over 37,000 subjects, they looked at this, and, and they took about an average of one to two drinks a day max on average. So that could have been, you know, taking seven drinks on a Saturday, nothing during the Monday to Friday, or just drinking it a little by little every day, just to drink a day. And they showed significant neurodegeneration or damage of the nervous system, specifically of the neocortex. Neo means new, of the new cortex, which is mostly the modern human brain, specifically the prefrontal cortex. Um, and that's the executive function that you have in the brain. That's the key player that is able to downplay and regulate your more primitive brain with all the primitive impulses. And also it's got a lot to do with future planning, strategic planning, executive planning. So that area of the brain, it's called the gray matter because that's where the neurons are, thins out. So you're losing probably hundreds of thousands of neurons as you do this little drink a day you know, I'm not saying one-off 
you know, you do it one time and then nothing for four months and then again, that's not going to do much. But if you're drinking most days a drink a day and you continue to do it on a chronic basis, even that baby amount of one drink a day, this study from the UK, 37,000 people, it shows that it thins the neocortex, thinning that gray matter and diminishing your ability for executive thinking. So it makes you, you could say, less smart in terms of controlling yourself, controlling your emotions, and planning ahead. So that's a big downside. Sorry to break it to you, but just a little drink at night with the dinner is not good if you're going to do it most of the days. You would have to be, again, something very infrequent, special occasion, Every few months, you're going to feel bad and the brain's not going to be happy the next morning. You could potentially or not get a hangover. You're causing some very short-lived damage. That's not a big deal. But if you're going to do it frequently, that low dose got demystified with this study. It does affect the gray matter. And just to be clear, when we say gray matter, again, are the neurons, the actual cells and the supportive cells like the astrocytes and um, other similar cells like that. And then the white matter will be the axons, which are the, you know, let's say the channels that communicate between neurons. And those, they call it white because grossly when you look at it, it looks white. And that's because of the myelin, which is what covers the um, axons. It has a lot of fatty tissue, has some protein as well, but has a lot of fatty or adipose tissue, which gives it that white um, color. Now, let's talk about inebriation. What happens when you're tipsy or drunk? What's going on? So, first of all, we have to make that big distinction between each person. Not everyone is the same. There's some genetic differences, and there's also going to be differences in terms of the amount of exposure historically that the person has had. Let's call it the metabolic training when they are drinking often the body tries to adapt so you're going to see different reactions in different people based on those factors so one of the main factors will be a genetic factor and the genetic factors are mostly found uh, in chromosome number four chromosome number four has the GABRA2 receptor this G-A-B-R-A-2 not GABA that's something else GABRA2 receptor and uh Mutations in that receptor causes differences in how the person manages the alcohol. Now, there's also in that chromosome 4 differences in terms of gene expression of the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase. So some people are going to have a lack of alcohol dehydrogenase, like Salmation uh, populations. Some people are going to have more of it. So that's going to change the way the person responds to the exposure to alcohol or when drinking alcohol and how quickly they get inebriated and how they get inebriated, what symptoms they get. Now remember, we're talking about a toxin here. You can call this a poison you're taking in. So the genetics are gonna play a role significantly. Now in terms of how often you're gonna drink it, how much you like it or not like it, there's a very multifactorial genetic gene pool that plays a role. And then on top of that, you add the social or environmental exposure stressors, that's gonna affect a lot of things and how people react. Now, just as a general rule of thumb, when somebody 
has a, a family history of alcoholism, especially close relatives. And they're the type of person at the party that they can be drinking two, three, four, five drinks and they get more and more energized and they get more, you know, as I say, they get happier, they get more excited. And, you know, people are passing out at the same time when they only had like four or five drinks and this other person is in drink number 10 and they're just talking away, laughing, full of energy. It takes a lot of drinks for them to pass out. You know, that's the type of person in general that will end up or are at a very high risk of ending up as an alcoholic. On the opposite side, somebody that is less likely, and you can, you know, check yourself, less likely to become addicted to alcohol will be that type of person that, you know, by drink number two or three, they're already getting sleepy. They feel uh, that the energy has gone down. They don't feel a boost when drinking alcohol. And they just say, I just want to go home. Let's go rest. That will be somebody that typically doesn't get that uh, response neurologically from the alcohol. So less likely to become an alcoholic uh, or what they call more formally in the clinical setting to develop alcohol use disorder, which will be an excessive amount of alcohol that's affecting their lives. They're not able to work or do, uh, you know, be a parent, etc., because of the excessive alcohol consumption. Again, alcohol use disorder or AUD, just for your knowledge. Now, why do humans drink in general? Okay, except those people that have a complete uh, deficit of the alcohol dehydrogenase. Why do they drink? Well. Initially, when ethanol was taken, both the ethanol and the um, um, acetaldehyde molecule, okay, those will cause an initial spike on serotonin and dopamine. So those two neurotransmitters will make you, will give you a little kick, uh, make you feel happier, more excited, and then you get that combined with what we call the top-down inhibition of the nervous system. So meaning you get the lack of executive control, mainly from the frontal lobe, specifically more in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So when that gets inhibited by alcohol, you're less judgmental, say, of yourself. Your emotions are let free. And then... That will reduce your levels of perceived stress. And on top of that, you're getting a boost of serotonin and dopamine. Okay, this is very short-lived. And uh, what happens is that you get that spike. And that's the reason why people drink, again, just to be very clear. But this is done in a very toxic way by alcohol. But it's able to do that. So when that happens, people feel better. Then, unfortunately, very quickly, I'm talking you know, 10, 15 minutes or so, you know, after a drink, people start having a drop on those serotonin dopamine levels. And it starts going down quite abruptly at some point there. And just, I'm talking minutes here. And then the person starts feeling even potentially worse than before they ever had the first drink in the first place. So they go back and get that second drink and get that second boost, so they get another serotonin boost, dopamine boost, top-down inhibition from the prefrontal cortex, chilled, again happy. Now the second drop happens even faster as you get more of that acetaldehyde 
poison in your body. And then you get another drop, go below that baseline mood, and you go for the third drink, and then you get a much smaller serotonin and dopamine response to that. And then you have to go for that fourth, fifth, etc. And it's just diminishing returns. You're just going to, at that point, get nothing back from a fifth, sixth drink. At that point, you are completely um, uninhibited. You're starting to get lethargic, slurred speech until you completely pass out. So that's the explanation of why humans drink and why they get caught up in the... uh, movie of going for that second third fourth fifth drink because they want to get that serotonin dopamine boost again let's talk about the top-down inhibition again the top-down inhibition means that the alcohol will block the executive centers losing that control freeing you from any judgments from yourself we're judging ourselves all the time and i talk about that a lot in my uh, meditation uh, podcast episode if you want to watch that one but you lose that judgment or that self-judgment you feel free you feel relaxed and the prefrontal cortex is the one that is being inhibited it's being blocked now there are other key things to mention and that would be the receptors involved in this so one of them is the GABA receptor okay that receptor gets upregulated, which causes relaxation it's in sort of like an anxiolytic receptor and then the other one is the nmda receptor that gets blocked which affects memory or creation of new memory so that's why people when they're drunk they do things um, not everybody reacts the same but there's a component of people saying i don't remember saying that i don't remember i did that i don't remember doing that i don't remember driving back home in extreme cases Those are the effects on the blockage of the NMDA receptor. And if you want to learn more about the NMDA receptor, I'll refer you to my ketamine video where I go in detail about the NMDA receptor and the effects on the brain. Now, let's continue to talk about the effects of alcohol in different parts of the brain. So let's get back to our neuroanatomy. Another key anatomical structure in the brain which controls a lot of the primitive reflexes and basal, uh, let's say, function of the body is the hypothalamus, which is sitting about the center of your brain, roughly. So the hypothalamus is in charge of regulating temperature, sex drive, appetite. It's a very, very uh, basic hop area for all this, like a relay station. So the hypothalamus will be affected by the acetaldehyde molecule and disrupting a lot of the neurotransmission, specifically through the HPA axis, that's the hypothalamus to the pituitary gland, which is more towards the front of the brain, to the adrenal gland. So there's a communication, um, uh, mostly a neuroendocrinology type of uh, process where you have messages going from the hypothalamus around the center of the brain again to the pituitary gland more towards the front and then to the adrenal glands so that's the h for hypothalamus p for pituitary and a for adrenal hpa axis again don't get caught up in the terms just for you to have the understanding basic knowledge you've heard it once at least so the brain will be disrupted at the level of the hypothalamus by alcohol 
So when you're drinking alcohol, that gets messed up. Signaling gets affected. And people end up with getting the wrong signal all the way down to adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands, which are in charge of producing different hormones, one of them is called cortisol. Cortisol is known mostly as your stress hormone. So you end up with high levels of cortisol. So when you have this high levels of cortisol, that leads to stress and all the stress-related responses. The problematic thing about alcohol is you get sort of like a double hit. So the first hit will be as you're drinking, your cortisol level will go up. Now the effect of stress at that moment is not felt immediately because it is probably um, overridden by the serotonin, dopamine effects, and the top-down inhibition. But it really gets nasty when those effects of serotonin and dopamine plummets after a couple of drinks. You really feel sort of like down in the dumps below baseline mood. And then you get that cortisol stress spike and that's when people feel horrible and that hangover. So you get an immediate problem with the high cortisol levels. And the other problem is that the high cortisol will remain even on the following day and sometimes on the second and third day. So you still have a high cortisol level and that's why people even day two after they stop drinking, they feel somewhat anxious. They remain anxious and they don't know why. And it's because of those long-lasting effects of ethanol and acetaldehyde more specifically on the HPA axis of your neuroendocrine system. Now, directly related to the brain is another axis, and that's the gut-brain axis. So there's this communication through the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve. So the vagus nerve communicates from the GI tract to the brain and passes different information. So that's what they call the gut-brain axis. So some people have called the gut as the second brain. So in the gut, we have trillions of bacteria. That's essentially more bacteria than your own cells that you have in your body. So there's more bacteria than you, which is pretty mind-blowing. But in any case, there's so many bacteria there. You know, normally they're part of you in a sense. They are symbiotes or they work along with you. And they actually can produce neurotransmitters. And those neurotransmitters can, through the vagus nerve, send messages to your brain and alter your own brain biochemistry. So alcohol, unfortunately, as you know, alcohol has been historically used uh, to clean wounds as an antiseptic. So it kills bacteria. So if somebody gets a big cut, you could use peroxide, but you could use alcohol and just kill the bacteria. So when you're taking alcohol, I know it's not isopropyl alcohol, it's ethanol, but when the ethanol goes in, it will kill bacteria, including some of your good bacteria that's producing those neurotransmitters that are regulating even the serotonin and dopamine neurotransmitters in your brain, controlling your mood. So when you take the alcohol, you're certainly killing a bunch of good and bad bacteria. So you're disrupting those signals um, that's gonna call also. That's gonna cause also digestive problems. You know, bloating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, etc. But I think more concerning than the bloating in that will be the, the destruction of your gut microbiome. That's the milieu or group of bacteria. Again, there's good and bad in there, 
but the alcohol will kill some of the good ones, disrupting the signals to the brain, altering your actual mood. And there's some studies also that have shown that drinking the alcohol itself may lead with time to a subselection of a population of bacteria that at the end, the signals they send to the brain turn out to a final result of your brain telling you, give me more alcohol. Now, the other problem with the alcohol or ethanol on the lining of the intestine is that you start getting this disruption of the normal barrier there in the intestine per se, getting what they call this leaky gut or leaky gut syndrome, where you start having translocation of endotoxins, or in other words, any toxins or bad molecules in your intestine that you're normally going to excrete down, they would actually cross into the bloodstream through the intestines and into your body, causing infections and a lot of inflammation, triggering a lot of interleukins like interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha and other things that are called inflammatory markers of other types that will make you inflamed and could lead to other diseases, most commonly something like autoimmune disorders, like for example, as a class, uh, SLE or lupus or RA, rheumatoid arthritis, etc. So there's a lot of side effects from this alcohol consumption. So keep that in mind. Again, I know I'm just giving you bad news, but it is the reality and you have to know you're free to do whatever you want to do. But this is another thing that the alcohol, a literal poison is damaging in your body or dysregulating in the, in the case of the gut brain barrier. Now let's talk about the long-term effects of drinking alcohol. So if you consume alcohol on a chronic basis, I'm talking months and months on end, these are the main problems you're going to face. The main organs are the brain, the liver, and the heart. So let's start with the brain. So the effects on the brain are, like I said, on the prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, so that's going to thin down, okay? So you're going to have actual shrinkage of your brain. And we see that all the time in medicine. I see it with uh, patients I've treated historically. And you'll see you have somebody that is 50 years old, you know, relatively young. And the brain on imaging, for example, a CT scan or a CAT scan or a brain MRI, magnetic resonance image, you'll see that it, it shrunk. It's almost like floating within the skull. What you would see on a overall average 90 year old and they're only 50. So that's something that I see on a daily basis, unfortunately. So you're going to have shrinkage of the brain, high predisposition to dementia, forgetfulness or other types of um, neurological disorders. Uh, but a lot of it is related to dementia. The other um, structure that gets affected, like I mentioned before, is the hypothalamus which is the regulator of the basics in terms of the basic impulses in your body like temperature control sex drive appetite all those things get dysregulated to the negative and then another structure is the amygdala which i haven't mentioned but the amygdala is one of your emotion centers is very primitive that gets downregulated by the alcohol and people live in a permanent state of anxiety, which is part of the whole cascade where they go and drink more to try to alleviate that disorder. So again, the brain will be affected long-term. 
by generalized shrinking, problems with the judgment centers, prefrontal cortex, neocortex, problems in the amygdala, the emotion center, and the hypothalamus, the basic hub. Now, so that's extremely problematic, of course, and then, you know, don't forget about what happens when the brain gets affected like that, and that's that clinically, people are at a higher risk of developing a neuropsychiatric disorder, so having some sort of psychotic event or an extreme anxiety event like a panic attack or recurrent panic attack, so it's not good. Now, let's talk about the heart. So the heart is absolutely affected by alcohol, and I'm talking again here, is mostly on the chronic side. Now, acutely, you're gonna get hypertension, high blood pressure, and high heart rate, because you get this vasodilatory, or the basically the blood vessels get bigger, and you get, uh, initially, you get a faster heart rate, so it depends on the timing of this. Once the effect of the alcohol wanes down, you get sort of like a negative rebound, you get vasoconstriction, which raises your blood pressure. So the end result in alcoholics who are constantly drinking, stopping, drinking, stopping, the net result is a tendency towards tachycardia or fast heart rate and vasoconstriction or narrowing of the blood vessels. I'm talking mostly here on the arterial bed, but also there's some effects on the venous system. But you get a tighter blood vessel which raises your blood pressure. So you have high blood pressure, fast heart rate. Now, the effects on the electrical uh, circuits of the heart are also significant with a higher predisposition to developing arrhythmias, very commonly one called atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. So the more common one that is seen clinically on people that drink is atrial fibrillation. So you can cause in the atrium, we have two of them, to basically fibrillate, as it says, is just sort of like instead of doing a kick to pump the blood, it's just sort of moving like this, which leads to stasis or lack of normal blood flow. So some of the blood will stagnate in some of the areas of that chamber and ultimately becoming a blood clot. When that happens, that clot eventually, just as a random event, will eventually get kicked out, especially when the atrial fibrillation interestingly and paradoxically you might think or counterintuitively when the afib or atrial fibrillation converts to a normal sinus rhythm and kicks out that clot you can end up with a clot blocking any of your arteries most commonly and most concerning will be up in the brain ending up with a stroke which basically ends up with dead neurons usually big segments millions of neurons and you end up with paralysis of an arm, half of a body, speech impediments, lack of ability to understand people, uh, what they're saying, or inability to express yourself, aphasia, etc. So, atrial fibrillation, tachycardia, and then the high blood pressure, which the high blood pressure can also ca cause problems. Again, in, in, in the case of strokes, it can cause a hemorrhagic stroke or a bleeding stroke where you have so much pressure going up into the brain, very high perfusion pressure of the brain can cause bleeding, okay, just common sense there. So alcoholics many times show up in the emergency department with a hemorrhagic stroke or with an ischemic stroke, which is the one caused by the blood clot that travel from that atrium chamber in the heart up in the brain. So that's what we see in medicine all the time, unfortunately. The other problem with the alcohol 
is a cardiomyopathy. There's, you know, there's different types of cardiomyopathy, usually constrictive cardiomyopathy, where the muscle gets bigger and the internal diameter of the chamber is smaller, and a dilated cardiomyopathy. It's more nuanced than that, but basically alcoholics present with a big heart, uh, dilated, that cannot really contract, and they end up with heart failure and die from heart failure. So I think that's bad enough. There's other problems with, you know, the general inflammation in the body that's probably contributing to the coronary artery disease or the blockages of the coronary arteries. Now, the other organ is the liver. So what are the chronic effects on the liver? In the liver, you know, the liver has to metabolize this ethanol using alcohol dehydrogenase to acetaldehyde to acetone by aldehyde dehydrogenase in the whole cascade. So they have to do all that work Plus, me, or maybe the person's taking medications, other things that the liver metabolizes. The liver is a very busy, forgiving organ, and it'll forgive you quite a bit from the alcohol drinking, and it has a high capacity to regenerate, but up to a point, okay? After months and months of drinking, the liver is going to start having a sequence of events, starting with a fatty liver, starts to have an excessive amount of fat in the liver to the abnormal metabolism there. And then from that, you get something called cirrhosis. Cirrhosis, in simple terms, means scarring. And as you get a scar on the skin, for example, when you get a scar, the scar in general, you know, it can start fading away a little bit, but you have a big enough scar, like in the case of drinking alcohol all the time for months and years. You get a big enough scar in your skin, it's not going to go away. You can get it as a kid, you can still see it as an adult, right? So that same scar is going to build in multiple areas of the liver. And again, a scar is a scar. That's not something that's going to reverse like a fatty liver could. If you catch a patient at a stage of a fatty liver, they stop drinking, that could revert. Okay, But when we get to cirrhosis, that's an irreversible process. And if it's bad enough, it's scarring all the tissue and you end up with very little viable liver tissue to do the job. And you cannot live without a liver. So essentially, the patient goes into acute alcoholic hepatitis, you know, until it turns into fulminant acute liver failure, and that affects everything else in your body, including the brain, the heart, and more. Kidneys, you go into hepatorenal syndrome, the liver fails, the kidneys fail, and you um, end up dead. Again, I know I'm presenting things, but it appears to be a very negative, uh, from a very negative point of view, but I'm just telling you the facts and the data Alcohol is toxic. It's not good, especially long-term. Now, let's talk about resveratrol and anti-inflammatory properties of wine. Okay, so this is what people have in their mind, that grapes and the process of fermentation leading to the wine will lead to the production of this chemical known as resveratrol. You might have not heard about this, but resveratrol is a polyphenol, which is this form of chemical that the grape plant uses as a toxin to deter small insects from eating it up. So that's effective against small creatures like a little bug, say a little ant. So basically this polyphenol ends up being bad for the little insect, it kills it, but it's good on a bigger animal like a mammal or a human which actually has a hormetic effect. Hormesis is a term in science that basically means a mild stress 
that leads to a net positive outcome, a biological outcome. So in the case of the polyphenol resveratrol, when humans take a significant dose, okay, and usually the regular guideline for resveratrol to have a positive effect, that's more specifically on the sirtuin system of genes. There's, there's called a sirtuin. There's about seven families of those genes that produce the sirtuin proteins. They can be triggered by a combination of uh, NAD and resveratrol. So that's going to be another podcast. But here, talk about the resveratrol. The resveratrol, if you take about 1,000 milligrams, some people say 2,000 milligrams a day of resveratrol, and you have sufficient NAD, you're going to trigger the sirtuin genes, which will cause ultimately a cascade of biochemical biological pathways that lead to health and increased longevity in the animal or the human. So some people say you shall drink some alcohol in moderation to have some resveratrol. Okay, so let's go through the calculation with that. Basically, a bottle of uh, a steak, Bordeaux, red wine, okay, um, you'll get, you know, roughly total, like 10 milligrams or less, it's like 9.5 the equation. You get about 10 milligrams of resveratrol because each grape has a very little amount of resveratrol, okay? So you're getting a very small amount. So if you're getting 10 milligrams and you need 1,000, how many bottles of red wine should you consume per day to achieve the 1,000 milligrams. And remember, there's some people who say you need 2,000 to trigger the sirtuin uh, proteins and genes. So let's take 1,000 on the lower side or the lower end. If you need 1,000 and each bottle is 10 milligrams, you would have to drink 100, yes, 100 bottles of red wine to get the correct resveratrol dose to get a health benefit from that. So you'll be dead day one. You're not even able to fit 100 bottles in you. So taking the wine for the resveratrol doesn't make any sense, okay? So that's not a benefit. And some people uh, have also alluded to the fact that resveratrol has anti-inflammatory properties, which has, again, you're not getting enough of a dose for the anti-inflammatory method. So that's, again, I'm not trying to be disparaging and just be all negative about alcohol, but the resveratrol effect does not exist there. You can get, as a supplement, resveratrol, and that's the best and only way to do it, okay? So if you want some resveratrol, just buy the supplement. It's called resveratrol, okay, or transresveratrol. So you can just get that and not trying to get that from alcohol because you're getting nothing. You're just getting a toxin. Now, let's talk about the hangover. Some people want to know what the hangover is. So just very briefly, why do you get a hangover? So the main reason for the hangover is the acetaldehyde molecule. So the acetaldehyde, what it does is that during the taking of the alcohol, you're drinking it, this molecule causes vasodilatation or vasodilation, so your blood vessels get big. And at that point, that's while you're drinking. And then when you stop drinking, say the next day, you get a negative rebound effect. So your vessels were so dilated that now they wanna be tight or vasoconstricted. So when you get this vasoconstriction, you get a lack of blood flow to your brain, and that causes that horrible headache. That's one of the main causes. 
then also the acetaldehyde molecule affects some of the nausea um, and uh, balance centers in the brain. People can be nauseous, they can be throwing up, and basically feel terrible overall. And then, of course, like I mentioned before, you have that high cortisol level, which causes anxiety and stress. So people feel uneasy the next day, maybe anxious, and that's part of the hangover. Now, let's talk about sleep and drinking. Now, I want to clarify this because a lot of people, unfortunately, are using alcohol at night as a tool to fall asleep. And uh, unfortunately, that doesn't work well, okay? That's been completely debunked scientifically, and uh, the mechanism is the following. What happens if you take the alcohol, yes, via the GABA effects, that receptor, that neurotransmitter, which makes you calm and relaxed. It can make you sleepy, it can induce sleepiness, and the person will fall asleep faster than if they had never drank that night. However, sleep has a specific architecture. You have to go through different phases of sleep. You might have heard about non-REM sleep, REM sleep, deep sleep, etc. Okay, there's different wave patterns that you can see on an EEG or electroencephalogram when you're sleeping normally. Unfortunately, with alcohol, there's different phases of the sleep that are dysregulated, and one of them, for example, is the REM, REM, REM sleep, or rapid eye movement sleep. That's the phase when you're actually dreaming, and your body goes into complete paralysis, the skeletal muscle, and you're very relaxed. That gets completely disrupted and downregulated with alcohol consumption, as well as other phases of deep sleep, which is the restorative sleep along with the REM sleep. So the whole architecture is off. So you might have slept eight hours after you drank, not really. And I don't know, maybe it counts like you slept three hours. Maybe, perhaps. So you're going to be exhausted. And even though you fell asleep quicker, you didn't really rest. You're probably better off struggling for three hours falling asleep until you finally slept a normal architecture of five hours, say. That will be a better deal to me. So please do not use alcohol to sleep better because you won't. Now, let's talk about cancer and chronic alcohol use, yes, there is a connection between cancer. What other you know, bad news you want? Cancer and alcohol. So the main cancer has been studied and where there's robust evidence to this connection between chronic use of alcohol and cancer is for breast cancer. So if you take all the data overall, there's an increased risk of about 4 to 13%, 4 to 13% risk on people that take about a drink a day every day so we go back to that low dose not being safe okay so especially for females in that case one drink a day chronically leads to an increased chance of breast cancer why is that the reason for that is that alcohol promotes the aromatization or the conversion from another hormone like testosterone or other androgens that females do have, as, well as males have a lot more of testosterone, obviously, but you'll lead to a higher conversion into estrogen. So females end up with a higher than normal uh, amount of estrogen in their body. And many of these breast cancers, not all of them, are dependent on estrogen. So the higher the estrogen level, the more a potential cancer cell can, let's say, to put it very simple, nourish with this estrogen and grow. So that's why the higher conversion into estrogen, higher estrogen levels, and more estrogen is not better all the time. If you're deficient in estrogen, that's a different story. 
But if your levels are about right and you take alcohol, they'll rise much more. And you can end up with a breast cancer feeding out of that excess estrogen, okay, and growing and evolving. And for males, the problem is that, well, in theory, they could get a breast cancer as well. But just remember, males do have breast tissue and they can get breast cancer. But that's studies I just cited are mostly for females. Now, the problem with males is testosterone, okay? So in males, the testosterone level will drop again because alcohol, again, chronic consumption, just one drink a day, will cause the testosterone to um, become estrogen or become aromatized into estrogen or converted. So you end up with lower testosterone, your estrogen levels start rising. So then males, some of them report lower libido, erectile dysfunction, and overall signs of low energy, low testosterone levels from chronic use of alcohol. So that's another downside of the consumption of alcohol. Now, since I have nothing positive to say about alcohol, is there something we can do, any practical application to try to combat some of the drawbacks, some of the things that alcohol is doing to you? If you're going to say, you know what, I like my drink, I don't do it all the time, tell me something I can do so that I can drink and maybe get less of the downside. So there's a couple practical applications, a couple things you can do. So very simple, basic one, you probably already know this, but let's get out of the way. So we'll be uh, managing dehydration. That'll be mostly during the drinking and during the hangover. So one thing that alcohol does that I did not mention is an inhibition of the ADH hormone, okay? That's vasopressin. Basically, when you block this hormone, you start losing tons of water. So it's a diuretic. So it's a pure water loss. Now, there's also insensible losses with sweat and other things that happen. You can end up losing electrolytes as well. So in general, one practical tool will be is that while you're drinking, mix it up between the alcoholic drink and plenty of water. Um, some people even, you know, if they can, have something with electrolytes can potentially offer additional benefit, but mainly with the ADH or vasopressin inhibition, you're losing mainly water. So I would say I would drink 2x in the amount of water, 2 to 3x actually, in terms of water compared to how much volume you're getting from the alcoholic drink. So just mix it up and, you know, before you go to bed, a couple more glasses of water and, um, and then, you know, in the morning, drink more water with electrolytes. So that'll be a practical application you can use to try to mitigate some of this hangover effects. That's going to try to override a little bit of that vasoconstriction that causes the headache because as you're more volume repleted or you're full intravascularly, that's going to help enlarge the blood vessels and minimize the headaches as you have more blood flow into the brain especially. Now, another practical application would be to take something to replenish the affected microbiome. So remember, the alcohol or ethanol is going to damage your microbiome, your bacteria, your good bacteria. So one thing you can try this, if you're drinking often or the day off and definitely the next day, I'll take a lot of fermented foods 
like for example yogurt kimchi tempeh uh, sourdough bread etc so those things have a lot of mainly lactobacillus which is a benign bacteria it's a probiotic so taking those before during and after could potentially offset some of the dead bacteria or have a higher volume of benign bacteria again mainly lactobacillus to try to offset the effects of that now there's no randomized control perspective trials looking at this there's no studies in alcoholics taking those and having a benefit but it just makes common sense that if you replenish with those fermented foods you can try to overcome some of the damage and uh, amount of bacteria that are killed by the alcohol in conclusion based on the scientific literature based on the medical literature the medical experience from physicians like myself on a daily basis I can tell you that there is no safe dose for the consumption of alcohol it causes too many problems the upsides are very short-lived and definitely not worth it I would discourage you from drinking alcohol I would say at all now except for potentially the occasional cultural social gathering a special meeting or something like that that you I guess have to socially take a couple sips from a drink every few months that's not gonna do anything okay that's not gonna cause significant damage um, so you can do that you don't have to 100% abstain from it but just know that there's not such a thing as a little consumption like a little daily consumption that's very detrimental certainly higher doses will lead to cirrhosis and death in just a few years so the bottom line is alcohol is a toxin is a poison and can cause a lot of social problems family problems and definitely health problems to yourself leading ultimately to death if you're finding this uh, podcast of value to you if you're learning something if you think it's helpful or at least you're acquiring new knowledge and you like that and you want to see more of this please consider supporting the podcast this comes at zero cost to you um, subscribing following putting a um, positive review on apple Podcasts or spotify will be tremendously helpful for the ongoing production of podcasts for you thanks for joining me here today and i hope to see you here back soon on the next episode of the longevity decoded podcast Thanks.